Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you. So many things, Lord, to thank you for. Thank you. You're awesome. meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight. Oh Lord, you are my strength, you are my redeemer. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. pretty good. I like that. I taught you well. Although if it was me over there, y'all probably all get up and run out of here. <laughs> good job. To the entire worship team, thank y'all. It was beautiful. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Would you stand with me as we end our time today in Joshua? Stand with me and turn, if you would, to Joshua chapter 24, and uh, we will read together, you don't have to read out loud, but we'll read together uh, Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 30. Joshua, Joshua 24, 1 through 30 is our reading for today. Get there, you'll find these words. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned, elder, summoned the elders, the leaders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country in Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron and plagued Egypt. And what I did in the midst of it, and afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers in chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They found, they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, 
king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a hand, a land on which you had not labored in cities that you had not built. And you dwelt and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us uh, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us out, out, brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, will, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his, his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnasserah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. You may be seated. Today, as we end our time in Joshua, 
And as we look at this passage, I'd like to lift this theme, Joshua's farewell address. Joshua's farewell address. My brothers and sisters, uh, it's a fact that the last words that a person offers are normally extremely important, and often they command extra respect, especially if the person, person offering those words knows that the end is near. Such words have been known to take on many forms. Sometimes those words are hilarious. Sometimes they're sad. Sometimes they're uh, philosophical. Sometimes, uh, all the time, no matter what form they take, they are always quite memorable. Noted playwright Wilson Meisner was near death in 1933 when a priest came in and said to him, I'm sure you want to talk to me. Meisner's response was, why should I talk to you? I've just been speaking with your boss. <laughs> These were Meisner's last words. On his deathbed, the wife of Alexander the Great asked him, who is going to rule in your place? His dying words were the strongest. Throughout history, some notable Christians have also made profound statements near death. Ulrich Zwingli, the noted reformer and contemporary of Martin Luther, he said they can kill the body, but not the soul. Well, by the way, we should all come to our end with this kind of faith. William Carey, the noted and great missionary to India, said as his final words, when I am gone, speak less of Dr. Carey and more of Dr. Carey's savior. Susanna Wesley, the mother of John Wesley, her final words were, children, when I'm gone, sing a song of praise to God. In scripture, in scripture, some of the great Bible patriarchs took special note when they saw their time was coming. They often gave a final charge or said something prophetic before they died. For instance, Peter, Peter used his last written words to stir the church. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Here's what he writes. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle or this body to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Paul. You remember Paul's final words? Paul wrote something equally encouraging as his final words as he was facing execution in 2 Timothy chapter 4. That all too familiar passage where Paul says these words, for I am now ready to be offered. 
And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all of those who love his appearing. Final words of Jesus, final words of Jesus prior to his crucifixion uh, are especially filled with meaning. We know that these words prior to his crucifixion were not the final words, final, final words of Jesus because he had a lot to say after his resurrection. But these words are notable because they came. All of his words are notable, but these are notable because they came just prior to his death. When you account for each gospel, Jesus, as you well know, uttered seven statements before he died on Calvary's cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today, he says to the thief, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son. Mother, behold thy son. Woman, behold thy son. Behold thy mother, son. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? I thirst. Where is Nathan at? Nathan, here's, here's one of the statements he made at, his, at that time. He said, it is finished. Nathan sung that song for us. Uh, then finally he says this, Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit. Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr recorded in Scripture, and he fully understood WWJD because as he was being stoned, he visually knew Jesus awaited him in heaven. He said these words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then as he died, he said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin in Acts chapter 7. Which brings us then to this person that we've been following for the last few months, Joshua. As we arrive at chapter 23 and chapter 24, we read chapter 24, our passage really was supposed to include 22 through 24, but I decided we'd, we'd, we'd land on, focus on 24, but as we arrive at 23 and 24. Uh, the end is near for Joshua. And he knows it. He knows that the end is near. Uh, this being the case, he is compelled to impart wisdom and warning with his concluding words. His farewell address, which he begins in chapter 23. We didn't read it, but he begins it there. He begins his swan song in chapter 23 by addressing the leaders who served under him. The tribal elders, the leaders, the judges and officials. And he concludes in chapter 24, not sure how much time passed between 23 and 24. Not sure if it was immediately following or some time had passed, but he concludes it in 24 with including all of those leaders and elders and in 24, not only are they invited to the farewell address, but all the people are present. Uh, all the people of all the tribes, 
first gathering in chapter 23 was likely held at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was located. The second and final gathering, which we uh, just read about in chapter 24, was held at Shechem. Held at Shechem. So before we get into the contents of Joshua's address, let's look briefly at this interesting choice of location for this farewell address. Shechem. Shechem was located just a few miles northwest of Shiloh. It was, you remember, where Abraham first received the promise of God that God would give his seed the land of Canaan back in Genesis chapter 12. You'll also recall that Abraham responded by building an altar to demonstrate his faith in the one true God. Then in Genesis chapter 35, verse 4, Jacob stopped at Shechem on his return from Padan Aram and buried there the idols his family had brought with them. And then we make it to Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, you'll remember that after the Israelites completed the first phase of the conquest of Canaan, they journeyed to Shechem, where Joshua built an altar to Yahweh, inscribed the law of God on stone pillars, and reviewed the laws for all the people. Joshua had good reason, therefore, to convene the Israelites at this location for his farewell address. Shechem has a storied history for the Israelites. Certainly the stones on which the law had been written were still standing there at Shechem. Vivid reminders of the significance of the event. Uh, so, from this moment on, that beautiful valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim would be associated with this unforgettable farewell scene as their honored leader spoke to them for the last time there at Shechem. On this occasion, Joshua speaks about the issues closest to his heart and offers his final admonitions. He begins here in chapter 24 by encouraging the people in several ways. He begins this way by encouraging them to, number one, reflect. It's in verses 1 through 13. We just read it. He encourages them in this part of the passage to do this, reflect. Uh, these were exciting times for the people of Israel. They had defeated their enemies and claimed the promised land. Each of the tribes had received their inheritance, and now they could settle down and enjoy life a little bit. It was a time of hope, prosperity, and blessings. It was, though, also a very dangerous time for the people. Uh, you, you know, times of prosperity, rest, and comfort, and contentment can often be dangerous for us if we don't watch it. They, uh, there was the danger that they would forget 
where they came from how they had gotten to where they were and what the Lord had done for them. There was a danger for them in their time of comfort and contentment, just as there often is for us. Uh, There was this danger. The danger was that they would begin to adopt the idolatrous religion of the Canaanites, who still, by the way, lived around them. Some of them did. There was the danger that they would fall into a state of complacency, a state in which they might feel that they could let down their guard just a little bit. Let me just pause right there and just share with you uh, this admonishment. Never let your guard down because we have an enemy who is like a roaring, roaming lion who's going about seeking you and me. So, so, so never let your guard down. But, but, but Joshua is aware that this was a danger. Uh, these were dangerous times for Israel because of their condition, because of where they were. Uh, to help the people avoid the dangers of forgetting where they came from and who brought them, Joshua proceeds to give them a history lesson. Every now and then, we need a history lesson. Now that they were in the promised land, Joshua reminded them of how they got there. Uh, uh, Taking them all the way back to Abraham's story in Genesis chapter 12. He tells them some various things in this history lesson. He tells them of Abraham's heathen parents. He tells them of Isaac and Jacob, of Moses and Aaron, of whence they came from. He tells them of from where they came from beyond the river, the Euphrates, from slavery in Egypt, from victorious battles of the conquest. Joshua reminds them that Yahweh has brought them out of a pagan past, blessed them with knowledge and faith and given them. A glorious gift. You warned me, and I said no. I said I don't need battery. I guess I did. That's my fault, y'all. Don't blame them. I'm just gonna talk loud till she get up here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this glorious gift that they had received, uh, a land on which they did not toil. Just work with it while I keep talking. And the cities that they lived. From a mighty long way. I can relate to that because thank you. As I look back over my life. More than one of y'all should have said yeah right there. I know the batteries was gone. But y'all somebody else should have said yeah right there. Because when you look back over your life. You ought to be able to look and see. That God has brought you. From a mighty long way. Uh, 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 The speaker here is Joshua, but the message is from God. Notice that throughout the rehearsal of Israel's history, God insisted that he was the star of the show and the performer of the action. I know Joshua is a central character throughout the book of Joshua, but the star of the show is God. 
I, 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 don't care, I don't care how prominent Joshua is in the book of Joshua and in his life. God is the one who is the star of the show. Uh, uh, he, he insisted that he is that. Uh, he says to them essentially in verses 1 through 13, he essentially says this, it's I and not you. It's important for us to remember that. It's, it, 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 he says, it's I, not you. The personal, pro, it, it's proven because the personal pronoun I is used 18 times in this short passage. It's all about I, I being God, not I being me, uh, not I being you, but I being God. Because Joshua is speaking, but God is the one giving the message. And I is prominent. For instance, in verse 3, he says, I took. In verses 3 and 4 and 13, he says, I gave. In verses 5 and 12, he says, I sent. In verse 5, he says, I defeated. In verses 5 and 6 through 8, he says, I brought. In verse 7, he says, I did. In verse 8, he says, I handed. In verse 8 again, he says, I destroyed. In verse 10, he says, I would not listen. In verse 10 again, he says, I delivered. Because it's about I and not about you. In summary, God was telling them, you got from slavery to hear because of me. When you sinned and were unfaithful, I came through. Is that, is that, does that describe anybody else but me? When I sinned, he still came through. Uh, I never, God says this. I never bailed on you, and my promises never failed. I enabled you all the way through to succeed. It was I, and it was not you. Here's the issue. How quickly we forget. How quickly we begin to take for granted the wonderful blessings and gifts from God. What we need to do is to remember and reflect on the goodness of God. Because it was him who brought us. It was him who taught us. Everything we have, he gave us. All that we are, he made us. All of the glory goes to God. Uh, so Joshua here admonishes to reflect in verses 1 through 13. He gives them a history lesson. And then next, in verses 14 and 15, he admonishes them, number one, reflect, but then to reverence. Reverence, verses 14 and 15. I, I need to read this passage again. It says this, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day. Who you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, uh, the gods that served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Admonishes them to reverence. Uh, after reciting Israel's history, Joshua challenges them to properly respond. To God's gracious provision. Because when we think about God's gracious provision, uh, the next thing that follows should always be a proper response. 
always. And so Joshua admonishes them to that. Their response was to be one of reverence. They were to, number one, fear. Fear. Uh, he, he says, fear the Lord. He says this, fear uh, is this, to take God seriously rather than having a mere casual relationship with him and trying to keep him on the periphery of life. How intimate is your relationship with God? It, 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 to fear him means that you carry him with you all the time. It means that you walk with him and you talk with him and you allow him to remind you that you are his own and the joy you share. When you linger there, no one else has ever known. This is what fear of the Lord looks like. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not uh, the kind of fear that makes you afraid, although uh, it depends on, on how you're walking. Sometimes you ought to be afraid. But this kind of fear is a reference. It, 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 it simply illustrates how close of a walk you have with God. Your walk with thee, a Sunday only walk. All right. This is what fear of the Lord looks like. To take Do you play with That's the, that's the other uh, uh, meaning of reverence. He says this, put away. This was likely a reference. He says, put away the gods, right? He says, likely a reference to the false gods mentioned throughout the Old Testament story to this point. The people of Israel had already begun to compromise with the culture around them. Some of them possessed household gods representing Baal and other gods worshipped by their neighbors. They 
had to change that. They, they, they had already uh, capitulated to the culture. They had already allowed what was going on around them to infect them. And they had begun to serve other gods. But it's important to remember that idolatry for us, because we, like, we tend to think, I don't have any statues in my house. I don't have any idols that I bow down to. We need to understand what it means for us today. Idolatry for us involves more than just bowing before and worshiping a pagan, a pagan god. An idol is any person, place, or thing that a person looks to as a source of purpose, promise, or provision other than looking to the only source. The only source is God. All those things in our lives that come ahead of the Lord need to be put away forever. I don't need to list them, do I? All of us are aware of what our idols are. They are numerous. And Joshua simply says that reverence means that all those things need to be put away. Also, reverence means this, serve. Serve, he says, with sincerity. Serve, it means that we should recognize that we are the Lord's possession and we should live accordingly. You do know, Paul, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says this, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So because of that, glorify God in your body. So reverence looks like this. Reverence looks like fear, putting away, serving. Also, he says, choose. Choose. Too often, we drift. Consequently, life can be like a ship without an anchor. One needs to decide what they are going to do and do it. Make a choice, Joshua says. You can't be on the fence. You can't be, you can't be lukewarm. Make a choice, he says. You can't drift like a ship in the ocean without an anchor because you'll find yourself drifting uh, into places that you don't want to go and that God does not want. Jo uh, Joshua says, make a choice. And to sum it all up, he says this, you ought to make a choice because I have. I, I've already made my choice uh, on that day at Shechem nearly 3,400 years ago when elderly Joshua stood before his people and issued this call and challenge. He embodied both example and the call. He says this, as for me and my house, we will. He says this, I've already made a choice for me. In my house, he says, I've already made that choice. Uh, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, is what he says. It, it, it's reverence. All of these things help us to understand better what reverence looks like. Uh, all of this equates to a picture of true reverence. Next, Joshua leads the people to this, to renew. Renew. It's in verses 16 through 28. I read them to you earlier. 
And just to summarize, here's what's going on. The people in 16 through 18, the people consider that the Lord, all that the Lord has done for them. And they declare, after Joshua recounts their history, they declare their allegiance to, them, to him alone. He challenges them. He gives them a history lesson. And the people declare their allegiance to God. He will bless them, but if they renege on their, on their end of the agreement, there will be a high price to pay, Joshua reminds them. In verses 24 to 28, the people were insistent and responded, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people and renewed the law that day at Shechem. Then he set up a stone pillar as a reminder of their vow and commitment, and they all after that went home. He sets up this stone pillar and says, this yourselves and this pillar are witnesses to what you've said today. This stone pillar has heard the word spoken so that every time you see the stone, you'll be reminded that as if the stone could talk, the stone would say, you remember what you said? Remember what you said. Then, after renewing this covenant, they all go home. So to this point, in his farewell address, Joshua has challenged the people to reflect, to reverence, and to renew. And lastly, he silently challenges them to my favorite one. It's in verses 29 and 30. It's a silent challenge. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything, but what's in the text is a challenge. Let, let, let me just read it to you. It says this. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 100 years old. They buried him in his own inheritance at Timnasirah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. If you weren't careful, you would have missed his silent challenge. It's in, it's in verse 29. It's a silent challenge. After admonishing Israel to follow their God. Joshua died at the ripe old age of 110. But it's in his death that we get maybe the most powerful of all the challenges. Uh, let me just go back a little bit. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, Joshua is referred to there as Moses' assistant or Moses' servant. And Moses in 1-1 is referred to as the servant of the Lord. But when Joshua dies, approximately 40 years later, in 2429, his title has changed. His title has changed. He's now, he's now called the servant of the Lord. For the first time in all of Joshua's life, for the first time recorded in Scripture, Joshua now has a new title. We've never seen Joshua referred to in this way until now. He's referred to as Moses was in 1-1 as not a servant of the Lord, but as the servant of the Lord. We haven't seen this before. Uh, 
Joshua's silent message here is essentially the same as Paul's spoken message in Philippians 4.9. Here's what Paul writes in Philippians 4.9. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And God of peace shall be with you in death by way of his title. Joshua essentially says, replicate what you witnessed in me throughout this journey. Simply says that without saying it, his title says it. Uh, because he gets to the end of his life. And now he's referred to as the servant of the Lord. Uh, I like the way uh, Unger's Bible Dictionary talks about Joshua's life. It says this, how, how does he get to this place? How does he get to 110 years old and now be referred to as the servant of the Lord? Joshua, uh, the, the dictionary says this, uh, no care, no advantage, no duty was neglected by him. He ever looked up for and obeyed divine direction with the simplicity of a child and wielded the great power given him with calmness and without swerving to the accomplishment of a high unselfish purpose. He earned by manly vigor, acquired, honored old age and retained his faith and loyalty, exclaiming in almost his dying breath, as for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Can I just share with you the goal? You might say, yeah. Y'all don't go to sleep on me. Can I share with you the goal? The goal is this, to hear, well done. Good and faithful servant. That's the goal, Martha. The goal is to hear in that day. You know, you know the day is coming, right? To hear, well done. Good and faithful servant. Joshua apparently hears those words. He's referred to as the servant of the Lord. But I do realize something. I realize that replicating Joshua is good, but replicating Joshua is really inadequate. Allow me to land this Joshua plane by referring to the one whom Joshua typifies. Y'all know who it is, don't you? Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the servant of the Lord. As God's servant, Jesus did what Israel could not do. Matthew quotes Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, and says that the prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, the servant of Yahweh, who does the will of his father perfectly. He is in perfect harmony with the Father's intent and will, it's Jesus. His first recorded words reveal his divine sonship and his mission in life. Even as a youth, he said this, his first recorded words, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? Uh, uh, and, and again, he said, I came 
to do the will of him who sent me in John 6. The climax of his servanthood is declared in his own words in Mark 10 when he says this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He is the servant of the Lord. He is the suffering servant according to Isaiah 53 because Isaiah records in the 53rd chapter of his book, he records these words about this perfect servant. He says this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all because he is the perfect servant of God. Joshua gives us a challenge at the end of life. Not necessarily to replicate his life but to live a life that would be Christ-like, to live a life that would replicate as close as possible the life of Christ. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for a lot of reasons, but mainly we thank you because of your grace. Because without your grace, all of us would be nothing. All of us would be no more because all of us have fallen short. But your grace has been extended towards us. And so, Lord, as we attempt to press toward the mark of the high calling of God that's in Christ Jesus, our prayer is that your grace would lead us, that your mercy would be with us, and that your love would carry us as we represent and replicate your life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.